Welcome to Bizarre to Brutal, featuring true crimes and scandals that were reported in the hugely popular Victorian newspaper, The Illustrated Police News. What follows are the actual reports from that time. But first, a warning. The writers sometimes didn't hold back from giving the most intimate details of these events. But if you can stand it, you'll get a revealing insight into Victorian life and uncensored human nature. So let's walk back through the mists of time. Twenty seventh of April, eighteen sixty seven. A ghastly experiment. Much has been written and many conflicting opinions expressed as to whether the head, after decapitation, retains any sensibility. And the question has been revived in Paris apropos of Le Maire's execution. Monsieur Bonafont gives the following account of an experiment on the dissevered heads of two Arabs, which will probably set the question at rest. He says, I was in Algiers in 1833, where I met with a military surgeon, Monsieur de Falois, who asked me what I thought of the assertion of Dr Wilson of New York that a dissevered head retains its sensibility for two or three minutes. I maintained the impossibility of the asserted fact on physiological grounds, but Monsieur de Falois remained unconvinced. I heard that on the following day two Arabs were to be beheaded, and obtained leave to make some conclusive experiments on the subject. For this purpose, I had placed on the execution ground a small, low table on which was placed a large, shallow vase, nearly filled with powdered plaster. I then went to the place of execution, provided with a small ear trumpet and a very sharp lancet. It had been agreed that the charus should place the head, immediately it was cut off, upon the plaster of Paris, so as to stop the haemorrhage. Monsieur Falois was to speak to the first head by name, placing the ear trumpet to the ear, while I examined what occurred in the eyes and on the other features. This was done, but notwithstanding all the shouts in the ear, I could not perceive the slightest sign of life. The eyes remained glassy and motionless, the face discoloured. The muscles gave scarcely any signs of contraction under the influence of the lancet. We changed places when experimenting with the second head, and Monsieur de Falois convinced himself that death was undoubted and instantaneous. It could not be otherwise, physiologically speaking, for immediately after the division of the large arteries which convey the blood to the encephalon, a sanguineous depletion takes place which must necessarily bring on syncope. First of June, 1867. Fearful situation of a female somnambulist in Somersetshire. 
on Friday night the 24th, a harrowing scene occurred at a small village near Glastonbury. It appears that a young girl, aged 17, named Clara Dalrymple, who has been in the habit of walking in her sleep on very many occasions, rose from her bed on the night in question and opened the window of her bedroom, which was on the fourth storey of the house, and stepped onto a plank that ran across from her father's residence to one opposite. Some workmen had been repairing the latter and, to facilitate these operations, had neglected to remove the plank which had been improvised as a communication between the two dwellings. Miss Dalrymple, to the horror of two persons who had witnessed her proceedings in the narrow passage below, stepped on this plank, which gave way before she had reached its centre, and the unfortunate girl was precipitated into the courtyard beneath, falling from a height of 70 feet. In her descent, her dress caught the arm of a lamppost in the passage, thus breaking her fall, and was the means of saving her life. A man named James Grinsby, a servant of her father's, and Mr W. Styant, a tradesman in the village, were the sole witnesses of the accident. When the first shock was over, they hastened to her assistance, being at the time under the full impression that she was dead. Such, however, proved not to be the case. Beyond a few bruises, Miss Dalrymple was in no way injured, for, in less than an hour after the accident, she was conversing with her parents upon her miraculous escape. First of June, 1867. Mysterious affair near Sligo. Two men shot. Sligo, Saturday. A most mysterious affair has occurred near the Coast Guard station of Shida, within eight or nine miles of Sligo. Early on Saturday morning, as Joseph Clark, one of the Coast Guards of that station, proceeded towards the beach, he found two men named James Nolan aged 25 years, and John Smith lying on the sandbanks in a helpless condition, both being dangerously injured by gunshot wounds. They declined giving their names, but stated they belonged to a brig which was seen during the evening of Friday hovering about the bay, and which sailed for Glasgow after the boat's crew had left the wounded men on shore. When asked the name of the brig, they refused to give it, or of the captain. They said that they sailed from Malaga, that they had been drinking below with the remainder of the crew, when a row ensued between them. They state that the remainder of the crew were Spaniards, that they, the wounded men, came on deck, when, to their surprise, they were followed by some of the Spaniards, who discharged their revolvers at them they were immediately removed to the Coast Guard station. In a short time after, the chief officer of the station arrested a third party found loitering on the shore, who also stated that he belonged to the brig which was seen in the bay on the day previous. 
He states that he is a native of Cork and that he came on shore in a boat in company with the mate and another man to leave the two wounded men on shore where they might get the assistance of a medical man to dress their wounds but that the mate and his companion returned to the ship without him. In the course of the day, the three men were conveyed to the residence of Ormsby Jones Esquire and on being interrogated as to the name of the ship or commander, they stated that they had forgotten the names of both. Mr Jones committed them for seven days for further examination as suspicious characters, when they will be brought up again for further examination. They were brought into town last night upon the magistrate's warrant and lodged in the county jail. The two wounded men had to be conveyed in a cart filled with straw. They remained in the jail hospital in a precarious state. There was found on the person of Nolan the sum of ten shillings and eightpence, on Smith four pounds in gold and on Nugent nine shillings. They state that there had not been any wages due to them by the master of the ship. The three prisoners have all the appearance of persons of a better class of society and it is surmised that they had given a fabricated account of the whole matter and that they do not appear to be seafaring men. The whole matter is shrouded in mystery up to the present. Sixth of July, eighteen sixty seven. Dreadful assault on a wife. A cat defending its mistress. A very remarkable case came before Mr. Knox at the Marlborough Police Court some few days since. The facts sworn to are in themselves melancholy and revolting enough, albeit we must admit that the assault cases which come before the several police courts in the metropolis are of a nature which would lead anyone to the very natural conclusion that we are living in a barbarous age. George Amy, number 12 Fitzroy Place, was brought before Mr Knox on a warrant charging him with having violently assaulted Isabella Amy, his wife. The wife, who appeared to have been knocked about brutally, said she lived at number 36 Tottenham Street. Her husband, on Saturday week, came to her place. He did not live with her, but cohabited with another woman and after a few words, began to ill-use her. He knocked her down, jumped on her, and then, throwing himself on her, seized her by the throat and attempted to strangle her. Assistance came in an unexpected form, and she was rescued from further ill-treatment, her husband making his escape. The wife told the warrant officer, Roskelly, that while on the ground and screaming a favourite cat named Topsy suddenly sprang on her husband and fastened her claws in his eyes and her teeth in his face. Her husband could not tear the cat away and he was obliged to implore her to take the cat from him to save his life. Mr Knox, having ascertained that the husband had been in the habit of ill-treating his wife, sent him to prison for one month. 
one month for knocking down and jumping on a wife. If the prisoner had been a reformer charged with throwing a stone at a policeman, the probability is that the worthy magistrate would have sentenced him to a much longer term of imprisonment. Twenty fourth of August, eighteen sixty seven. Extraordinary attempt to murder a seaman by the captain of a ship. On Saturday, Captain John Orwin, late master of the ship Cops, was brought before Mr. Paget at the Thames Police Court, charged with feloniously cutting and wounding Henry Crickmore, cook and steward of the same vessel, with intent to murder him. Mr. Charles Young, solicitor, defended, but said he had been so recently instructed that he reserved his cross-examination of the witnesses. The case for the prosecution, however, which is one of a very extraordinary character, was stated at considerable length. The main allegations are the evidence of Henry Crickmore, cook and steward of the cops, who deposed that on the 25th of July, the captain made the following proposition to him. The captain said, I have got a plan and you must stick to me with it. He said, Tonight, when it's the bosun's watch on deck, he will be at the wheel and Thompson will be on the lookout forward. And when you are turned in, you take and kill the mate. And I will kill the bosun and Thompson. And then I'll batten the forescuttle hatch down when the watch is down below, and then I'll starve the dogs to death. We will square away and take the ship somewhere and sell her and the cargo, and we will go home and say she is lost. I said, No, my heart will never let me do it. The captain said, You will have to do it. I said, I won't for you or anyone else. I came on deck at eight o'clock in the morning with the intention of jumping overboard. The boatswain caught me as I was going over and prevented me drowning myself. On the 31st of July, I went to bed at half past nine o'clock and I fastened the stateroom door and made fast a button to the stave. At half past eleven o'clock the same night, I heard the door smash in. I was then making my way out of bed and I received a blow on the back of my head with a piece of wood. Then I felt a knife go into my side and I had three stabs on my left leg. I called out, I am killed, I am stabbed. I became weak and insensible from loss of blood and did not know what was done with me till eight o'clock the next morning when I found myself lying on a bed in the middle of the cabin floor. In the meanwhile, the boatswain had put the captain in irons, and the chief mate had taken the command of the ship and was making for Lisbon. They reached that port and went before the British consul, who sent witness and prisoner on by the peninsula, and the rest of the crew were expected on Friday. There was evidence of a previous attack, and the witness also spoke of an attempt to poison the men by means of opium in their coffee, and another attempt at means of poison in a goose. 
Henry Hine, the chief mate, gave corroborative evidence so far as the attack on the cook and the arrest of the captain were concerned. And he was supported by the second mate and also by the bosun. The captain made no reply when accused of the attempt, nor did he offer any resistance when he was put in irons by his crew. Mr Paget remanded the prisoner till today. You've been listening to Bizarre to Brutal. I'm Mark Capel. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, climb into your handsome cab and head over to bizarretobrutal.com to find out more. See you next time.